I'm Jared Rizzi, and this is At the Table, our new podcast. We started, uh, we launched with the first round of Democratic debates just about a month ago. In about six weeks, uh, take the uh, take the rest of the summer off, folks. There'll be the third round of Democratic primary debates for president. But coming up just this week, in fact, tonight and tomorrow night, we will have the second round of DNC primary debates. They are in Detroit, Michigan, where Philip Crowther is as well. He's an international affiliate reporter for the Associated Press, a good friend. Philip, what is happening in Detroit and why on earth have they sent you there? Hi, Jared. Uh, I don't know why they send me here. Um, so what's going on in Detroit is it's rainy right now at the time of recording. Uh, we're all coming in slowly but surely. Reporters, that is, uh, political influencers and presumably also candidates, some of whom uh, are in Detroit already. Now, why am I here? Well, because a lot of international channels uh, are interested in this kind of a thing. You might be surprised to hear. Uh, democratic debates, especially uh, during a time of Donald Trump as president, uh, they do spark interest around the world. So what I'll be doing here is reporting for all sorts of affiliates uh, who work with the Associated Press. So that's the likes of uh, Voice of America, for example, or France 24, uh, RTL Luxembourg, which is where I'm from, uh, all sorts of different channels who do want to uh, know how these democratic debates are going. Uh, they might not want to get into the granular detail, but uh, people certainly are interested in American politics right now around the world. And I think that more or less explains my so presence you will be broadcasting. This is. I love to talk to people who are smarter than me, more talented than I am. You'll and, have to and call you, someone else, Jared. Yeah, you are broadcasting in five or six languages. Is that right? Yeah, I think I'll be broadcasting in five. So um, uh, we're basically offering live broadcasts, live shots, as we call them. So live on-air reporting on camera uh, in five languages. And uh, from what I'm seeing on my list of <laughs> affiliates who are interested, I should be doing five. So those five at, uh, at this time are English, French, Spanish, uh, Portuguese, and Luxembourgish, of all things. And then uh, the one that's still missing is German, which is my mother tongue. So um, if anybody needs an update from the democratic debates in German, I'm here I am you. absolutely certain that you have made up Luxembourgish, but I'm just going to move right on. Um, it's not where happening. you were not. <laughs> it's, it's where you were not. And you and I were talking about this uh, a little while ago. You were not at the last debates. Where were you for the last debates a month ago, Miami, Florida? You weren't there. Why weren't you enjoying beautiful Miami summer? Yeah, you'd, you'd think I might have been in the in, entirely the wrong place. I was at the G20 summit in Osaka in Japan, uh, which seemed a little bit more exotic <laughs> to me as a destination. So I decided to go there. Not really. No, my, my employers, of course, decided to send me there instead of to the debates. Uh, so I didn't watch them live. They were on at the wrong time, first of all, uh, because of the time difference. Uh, and in fact, I hadn't watched them until yesterday. Um, yesterday, I watched both debates in a row uh, on the same day. And so I come to this, these debates here in Detroit as if these 20 candidates had debated <laughs> only yesterday. So essentially, I'm, I'll be looking at, uh, you know, let's say I'll be looking at Beto O'Rourke on stage uh, this, uh, this Tuesday. And I'll look at him and go, well, you need to do better than yesterday. Uh, yesterday, you really weren't looking all too confident on stage or the day before yesterday. I'll be looking at uh, at Joe Biden and Kamala Harris and, and looking at them and going, 
well, you guys were in a bit of a fight yesterday. Are you <laughs> getting along again? So um, I, it's a very interesting way of doing this. It's a little bit like watching all of Game of Thrones <laughs> in uh, in with just ju a few weeks before before the final episode. With just about as much bloodbath, I would imagine, uh, as... Uh, as an... <laughs> we're not no. quite there yet. It's pretty civil. And, uh, uh, you know, you've seen these uh, as well, of course, these debates. Uh, that's That would be one of my main takeaways, if you will, from watching them so quickly in a row and so recently uh, is that uh, it, it was all very civil compared, of course, to the, the last experience uh, both of us and all of us had from watching any kind of political debate. Uh, if you're not in, into uh, very local or state level politics, the last debate you will have seen would have been Hillary Clinton yeah. versus Donald Trump, uh, which is pretty much the ugliest it can possibly get on a debate stage. So all of this is awfully refreshing. I you, I'm trying to remember now, were you there with me? I was in St. Louis for, I believe, the second debate where Donald Trump brought the the Clinton accusers to the event and actually had them do a like a press conference right before I mean just just an insanely ugly yeah. kind of a, no so we're nowhere near that but I do think there are some moments where we we imagine a bit of conflict and you you can talk about how this compares for the various audiences that you are servicing as an international affiliate reporter with the Associated Press uh, I would imagine for example the uh, a foreign audience may not find the differences between Sanders and Warren on the left flank, which will be this first night of debates. That might not be very, uh, very interesting for, for places that have a, a much uh, more vibrant uh, left or even socialist party. Maybe on, on the Wednesday night, uh, Biden and Harris uh, may do a similar kind of dust up. But I imagine this is, as you said, relatively civil, especially compared to Clinton and Trump, but even compared to some of the destinations that you'll be speaking to where they have a, a politics that is a little more a little more colorful than uh, than American. I, I'm just thinking now, I know that you, a British audience was not one of the ones that you mentioned, but I'm just imagining how much a, a country that is willing to accept, for example, a Boris Johnson uh, and ready for him as, a, as the uh, head of head of government. I can only imagine what they're and, and, and British politics is so much more interesting, frankly, as the uh, uh, in, ter in terms of the food fights that they're able to have and you know, stealing of maces. The grass is always greener <laughs> on the other side, Jared. I think I think uh, I think Brits very much enjoy American politics. But, you know, speaking of, of uh, Sanders and Warren uh, and what is seen as the far left wing, uh, of the Democratic Party. Remember that they, they, they're not considered far left in, in large parts of Europe. Uh, France being one of the countries that I'll be uh, broadcasting for, yeah. they are essentially the center uh, in France. Uh, so, so that's a really interesting, you know, you can do a barometer basically, uh, or you can, you can measure them uh, on the American system and on the French system, and they basically all budge a lot more to the center, if you will. So you'd put Sanders and Warren more or less in the center, uh, meaning that uh, everybody else is not necessarily center right, but very centrist and maybe even verging on the slightly to the right. Uh, it's just a completely different view of, of looking at politics. The, the right wing, if you will, here in the United States to a lot of audiences in Europe is very, very far to the right and has been for years. This is not a, a new phenomenon with Trump. Uh, Trump would be considered extreme right, uh, whereas the Republican Party over the last decade or so would have been considered uh, pretty much far right, at least uh, in France. Just to Where use does that someone as an like Marianne Williamson fall on anyone's political spectrum? <laughs> That's an unfair question, but I'd um, still like you to answer it. I, in, in, 
Well, I, I would, I would like international audiences to know more <laughs> what a about it. This is um, what I love and, is no, no. What I love is, as, and this is for people who I, I have to pull back the curtain a minute. Philip is not only a fellow colleague and a former White House colleague when I was uh, on the White House beat, but he is still bound by the the strictures, by the the vestments of uh, journalistic propriety, <laughs> and I have the ability to to uh, play a little bit more. Uh, in in the sandpit, and and so it's lovely to ask a question like this, and know, and be able to see, and and know what face contortion you are about to make as soon as I ask the question, because I know exactly <laughs> what I've done to you, and so I apologize, but I don't because I'm going to still make you answer the question. No, I appreciate it. I mean, that's a, it's a very interesting situation where you know you remember the first two debates in Miami where everybody, including of course the moderators, <laughs> had to call her author Marianne Williamson. You right. just have to find a title for everybody. Uh, and uh, it doesn't really describe who she is. And it certainly doesn't describe who she is after that first debate performance, because it was a bit of a, a new age self-help author kind of thing, which I think uh, describes her a little bit more and certainly not a politician and, and, and probably not somebody who really understands politics either. Uh, but these candidates exist. Um, remember that uh, uh, there is now, as you just mentioned, there is a prime minister of the United Kingdom who was once considered a joke. <laughs> candidate. Uh, these things change rather quickly. I'm not saying Boris Johnson is, is exactly of the same ilk, uh, but, um, you know, we'll have to take them seriously as long as they're on the debate stage, that's for sure. There have been candidates like this uh, in other countries uh, before that you just have to uh, take seriously while they are there because they have reached that percentage that they needed. They have reached uh, the amount of money they needed. In some countries, every single party is allowed to be on stage simply because it's not a two-party system, it's a multiple-party Party system and every party gets to have the same rights, which I think is a great system, and you know we could probably do with uh, here in the United States. Uh, but um, uh, in basically, I'm looking forward to seeing her again. Having only just watched her a day ago, uh, my memory is still very fresh with uh, what Marianne Williamson came up with, and and what I really enjoyed were the looks of the other candidates <laughs> toward her uh, when she did speak. It was uh, they were looks of disbelief, but also of of respect because they just had to. Um, I think most of the candidates were looking at her going, who is this and why is she saying these things? Um, but, you know, it was um, it brought a little bit of entertainment. And uh, again, you know, she's got enough supporters. She's got enough money um, to to reach that threshold. So um, and that the more threshold the will be say. considerably higher in terms of both support in the polls and also in terms of donors for the next round of debates in six weeks. But while we're talking about candidates that uh, are a little bit more on the fringes of modern political, uh, especially American left right spectrum, it's interesting to me because Marianne Williamson will be on the the far fringe, not just of uh, policy discussion, but also on the debate stage. And what we tend to see in these from a visual perspective is the poll leaders are in the center in front of the moderator's table, primacy of place, so that they are very often in frame for other uh, for, for other camera shots, even when we're seeing some of the other candidates. Marion Williamson will be on the far uh, far left. Uh, Governor Bullock uh, will be on the far right on the first night. And you've got other contenders, the, your Senator Klobuchar's, your Beto O'Rourke's, kind of filling in the middle on the left and right sides, respectively. Which doesn't, of course, reflect their political affiliation like you were and I were just talking about in terms of who's left or right or center. But it is a, a sense of the closer you are to the center, the better you're doing. 
I mention all this because on the second night, we have Joe Biden, we have Kamala Harris, two people who have really made uh, big strides, and the former vice president, of course, having a lot of support going into this, the presumptive front runner uh, as far as these early polls, which are, are snapshots that mostly register at this point, of course, name recognition, and Kamala Harris, who made quite a few uh, big moments for herself in those first debates, which most of us watched a month ago, but because you were in Japan having a good time, uh, you only watched uh, just uh, just a few days ago. But again, <laughs> all of this preamble is by way of saying a, f a person that I considered much more fringe and certainly far to one side for the uh, first round of debates, Andrew Yang, is right next to Kamala Harris on this second mm -hmm. night of debates. He is bringing mm -hmm. universal basic income and a few other policies that do not see, a they do not get a lot of oxygen in American politics, and he will be giving them a lot more attention. What does that bring? Because I know that some of these policies, again, to some of the countries to, to which you'll be serving as an affiliate reporter, uh, this is these are much more mainstream ideas, but this is not what an American audience is used to seeing. No, and I think what you just said is as far as it'll get, uh, if you will, in terms of, uh, you know, if you're doing a, a live shot for an international broadcaster and you only have three minutes time, if you're going to talk about Mr. Yang at all, you're going to describe him as a former tech executive who wants to introduce a, a universal income. Uh, and that's pretty much it. Um, and I think, you know, to be honest, that's pretty much all that he brought to the first debate. I didn't see him as somebody who came up with many other policy ideas and who was able to uh, define himself very well on that debate stage. I would presume that his position is going to move further to the fringes of these debates as they continue, though um, I think uh, the latest from his camp, though, is that he has, in fact, qualified for the third round of debates, so he's there to stay. Now, you mentioned that uh, Biden and Harris will be right there. They'll be right next to each other. That's the difference to uh, the last round of debates. There was somebody between them, and it was... Um, who was between Harris and Biden on the very first night? There was one candidate who was between them, I believe. They weren't right next to each other. Uh, I think it, it was Bernie Sanders, wasn't it? Uh, yeah. And uh, and so now they're closer together. And if there's, That's right. I was be... thinking about who was on the left. It was like who was where. It's it was more recent for your memory as as you've helpfully <laughs> yeah, reminded. I should have remembered. I should have uh, watched this. You know, day. they're they're very close to each other. Cory Booker is going to be to Joe Biden's right, to at the left of Joe Biden from our point of view. That's an interesting one as well. Um, then uh, we've got Castro, the former uh, housing secretary, is going to be right next to Cory Booker. It's a very interesting uh, lineup for the second night. I think really what we're looking at here is a similar constellation to the first time around. The first night doesn't look like it's going to have fireworks. The second night looks like it might very well have those fireworks. And that's exactly what happened in Miami, more or less, a month ago. It looks like we'll see a repeat performance of that. But if you look at the first night, though, there are all these candidates who risk falling off uh, yes. for the next debate in Houston. I don't know exactly what the criteria is, but it's more strict than it was for the first debate. The first debates, it's stricter than it is for the second debates. And people like uh, Tim Ryan, for example, like Delaney, Hickenlooper, uh, they could very well fall off and simply not be on stage anymore. And that pretty much ends their campaigns. Uh, so, you know, this these debates here in, in Detroit will also be a nice final opportunity for us to see people in the limelight who we probably won't see there again anytime soon or never again. I am interested only because we're, we're talking now about the debate stages. I'm fascinated by the idea that uh, the mayor of New York City, Bill de Blasio, is 
in same position essentially as Marianne Williamson we were talking about and he must hate that. right that he is on the far right of the second night um, and and probably provided some of the loudest fireworks I actually thought that Senator Gillibrand and uh, Mayor de Blasio were providing I thought as a New Yorker I thought they were providing uh, an ample uh, reinforcement of the New Yorker stereotype that they were being able to cut in and and make themselves heard when uh, when others were trying it'll be interesting to see as de Blasio's um, desperation potentially kicks in, uh, where that leads him, I don't know if it necessarily leads him to any more support. But we're, we're talking too much about optics, and you and I could do this all day because we're both fascinated by uh, the, the presentation of this. But let's go a little mm-hmm. bit deeper because I know for the audiences that you serve and for the audience that I'd like to make sure that we're serving here on this podcast at the table, we talk a little bit about the area of which you are uh, much more in your, in your expertise, which is foreign policy. What do you look, we did not get a lot of that. And frankly, for American presidential debates, that is not unusual. Absolutely. We heard a little bit about Iran. We heard quite a bit about climate change. We heard about immigration, mostly as it relates to the US Southern border. North Korea, there wasn't much beyond that in the first round. What are we expecting? Is it going to be the same amount of foreign policy in just this very superficial level? Or do you expect it to go a little further? And what nuggets will you be mining? Because I know you've still got to present a story for the audiences that you serve. What nuggets will you be looking for to make sure that those audiences get what they need? Well, look, I fear it might be disappointing again. Um, Like most debates that I've followed so far, Remember, for example, one in the 2012 cycle that uh, made for one of the most famous sound bites. It was Mitt Romney saying that Russia was the biggest geopolitical foe for the United <laughs> States. It was, and he was right. Amazing. Yeah, and an enormous vindication Incredibly, for, for he was now right. Senator Romney. And um, it was a moment for then President Obama to actually attack him and to make fun of him almost because he said Russia. Um, but all of this just to say that that was one of the very few little foreign policy soundbites that we got out of those debates. They were hugely frustrating. Uh, the Trump-Clinton uh, debates were also relatively frustrating when it came to foreign policy. A lot of their points of view had to be simplified, maybe because of Trump's presence, because he had a simplified view of the world. He was going to tear up the Iran nuclear deal. He was going to exit from the Paris climate deal. And then Unbelievably, when you look back to three years, he actually did that. Remember how incredibly improbable that seemed at the time. So what we saw in in Miami was there was a bit of foreign policy in there, but too often it was just what the moderators wanted to see as a, a two word or one sentence answer. What is or the, a show of hands? Or a show of hands. I mean, what's the biggest? Which thankfully has has been eliminated, I believe, from it this has round. Been, yeah, but uh, it doesn't goodness. mean that they're not going to go around the room and say. You have one word, uh, you have a one word answer, which is the biggest enemy country to the United States, something like that. Uh, That really puts people on the spot and really doesn't help the conversation, does it? Uh, You know, here's here's what I'd really like to hear. I think that if a Democrat... It's like a hostage situation. Blink if you think North Korea is a problem. Indeed, yeah. (laughs) Um, uh, What I'd like to see here, if a Democrat is to be president in the year 2020, they are expected to undo a lot of the Trump policies as quickly as possible. In some cases, they have to, because if the United States is to exit the Paris climate deal, they do it essentially the day before or the day after Election Day, if I'm correct. So... That is really something that a Democratic president has to do as quickly as possible, quickly sign on to that deal again and get back into the mix. 
With the Iran nuclear deal, it's something similar. All of these candidates, I think, with the exception of one or two, would probably re-enter or try to re-enter the nuclear deal. Some countries might simply say, well, no, you exited. We don't want you back straight away. Uh, we need to trust you first. But anyway, that is one thing that I'd be looking for. How can they guarantee, can each candidate guarantee that they will undo those foreign policy moves by Trump. There are others. Uh, would you normalize re a relationship with Cuba again, which has gone you know, the wrong direction uh, during the Trump presidency after an opening up during the Obama years? Uh, that's another thing that hasn't been mentioned so far. Uh, so those are some of the things that I'll be looking at, and I'd like to have longer answers. I also want to hear from these candidates they oppose almost everything that Trump has done in terms of foreign policy. But I'd like to hear from them, what is maybe the one thing that you would keep? What is the one thing that Trump, that Trump despite his bluster and despite his style, what is the one thing he might have done wrong, uh, might have done right, sorry? Uh, might he have been right uh, in starting a trade war with China? Might he have been right in exiting the Iran nuclear deal and looking for a better one? Uh, might he have been right in um, in getting out of a more normalized relationship with Cuba. Uh, that's something that I want candidates generally to admit to in other subjects as well, in domestic policy as well. Despite the fact that you hate the president, what are one or two of the things that you actually think he might have done well? Uh, it's, that's a very difficult question to answer, especially when it comes to foreign policy. Well, and especially considering where the Democratic primary electorate is on admitting or being able to admit that the president might be right. Here's one issue that may dovetail perfectly into the into the question that you've just asked, Philip, which is Afghanistan. Now, mm -hmm. Secretary of State Mike Pompeo just this week has been saying that the president would like the U.S. completely out of Afghanistan by 2020. Now, that is a big change in terms of foreign policy. Absolutely. And it's one that could easily get the exact kind of answer that you're anticipating or that you're hoping to get. And I really do hope that you do get uh, what you'd like, not just because I like to see you happy and satisfied, <laughs> but because I think it would make for a, a good and, and substantive discussion. Here's a question that might actually have some people saying, this is a great idea. Now, yeah. will it actually happen? Lord only knows. Is the president serious about this? An even bigger question somehow. But it is something that the Secretary of State is talking about with some seriousness. And I would be fascinated to hear Democrats on the stage on both nights talk about where we are, because we saw so little discussion of Afghanistan in the 2016 mm -hmm. primary debates in the presidential debates. And now, three or four years later, we've been there three or four years longer and there's very little additional to show for it. So I'd be it's, very curious to hear the answer to that it's question. It's a perfect show of hands questions, really, isn't it? <laughs> Do you agree with the president that we should bring all of our, I presume it would be all of our combat troops out of Afghanistan yes. by, uh, by the year 2020 or by November 2020? Now, look, the, the fact that this has come out of the White House at this precise moment is not a surprise. Uh, this is the president inserting himself into uh, the 2020 election cycle cycle as quickly as possible. This is something yes. where, again, he wants to be able to say, I was successful uh, in foreign policy. I got our troops out of Afghanistan. Remember, remember after all, the president uh, ran as somebody who wanted to end US involvement uh, in wars abroad. And more crucially, and I personally would say this is the definition of the Trump presidency is do what your predecessor did not and undo what he did. And in this case, 
Donald Trump would be able to say, this is something that Obama has wanted to do for a long time. This is something right. uh, that George W. Bush might have wanted to do at some point. I am the one who is finally doing it. That, I think, is the biggest motivating factor of the Trump presidency. It is do what Obama did not or undo what he did. And this is another opportunity for him to do exactly the same. It is also an opportunity for him to do something that takes the wind out of the sails of all of these Democratic candidates Absolutely. who might be willing to go on stage and say, here is a promise I am willing to make on this debate stage. I will bring all combat troops out of Afghanistan by, uh, let's say, in two years time in their case. That's a big, big promise to make. But up comes the president and says, well, I'm actually going to do it earlier. I think that's how that was meant. Uh, and it really uh, it really throws a spanner in the works, if you will, of, of some of the foreign policy um, announcements that some of these candidates might have been willing to make on stage. It's also an opportunity, and we've seen uh, foreign policy be used in this way so often in American politics. He could say, oh, I'm going to do that. And by the way, this is, this is giving President Trump far too much third or ninth dimensional chess credit here, but he could easily say, I'm going to do this. And then two years from now say, oh, it's far too dangerous. And look at these, you know, lefty candidates who want to get us out of Afghanistan. We've only been there 20 years, folks. It's not nearly enough. Um, we need to stay in there. Otherwise, uh, America is at danger. I also imagine that while he's busy undoing everything that uh, former President Obama did, he will somehow resurrect Osama bin Laden. I do think it'll be interesting, though, and that's a that's obviously a joke, but I do think it'll be interesting if people People were to answer. And if I were advising any of the candidates uh, on the stage, I would love to hear them respond to the Afghanistan question uh, by saying, yes, as long as Eric Prince uh, doesn't install essentially the right. East India Company as the privateers of Afghanistan, because we know that the, you know, a relative of the Secretary of Education who runs a paramilitary, you know, uh, you know, a mercenary firm has wanted, he's been champing at the bit, trying to get involvement in America's hotspots, mm -hmm. where wherever we could have troops removed, we could potentially put in uh, political patronage and uh, start paying twice the price for uh, soldiers abroad, but uh, not ones that wear the American flag. That would be a fascinating pushback. But again, we so rarely get that kind of depth from the debate stage. And so I, I feel like both of us are probably going to be disappointed. Well, look, here's, here's another thing that, uh, that I'd like to see and we haven't seen yet uh, in these debates so far. Remember that we have a lot more of these to come. Is it 12 in total? I believe it's 12 debate nights. I think it's, altogether. it's 7 million debates uh, between now. It's 7 million. And... Okay. Somewhere between 12 and 7 million, we'll, uh, you know, we'll have a good time anyway. Let's say it's 12. I believe it is 12. Um, in theory, at least, that could make for 24 debates, of course, if there are constantly 20 candidates. Oh, but we're going to see. God. Yeah, I know. Uh, in How theory, in theory. Um, How dare you? But. Oh, what's that recoiled <laughs> the idea it that we would be in like september of 2020 and there would still be like <laughs> i'm 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 not complaining i get to travel to places <laughs> so uh, you know uh, <laughs> they'll have to come up with more and more exotic places to have debates uh, but look here's here's another thing that we haven't seen so far and the reason why i say uh, why i mentioned the sheer number of debates is there is a lot of time still uh, for maybe let's say six candidates remain in a few months time. There's still a lot of time for them to go on stage and say, look, 
some of the things that Donald Trump has done and said, I don't agree with the style, but we need to come together as a country and, you know, let's somehow find some common ground. That obviously hasn't happened yet, because right now what Democrats are obviously looking for and what they'll be looking for in the future as well is the candidate who's most likely to beat Donald Trump. And a lot of these candidates also want to be on stage as being the most vociferous and the most aggressive toward Donald Trump. But at some point, or maybe in the case of some candidates, that has to shift. There have to be candidates who are willing to say, look, of course I want to be the Democratic candidate, and of course we want to beat Donald Trump, but a quarter of the country voted for him, so we need to take those things into account, and we need to look at those things very seriously. And maybe one or two will be willing to say on stage, I don't like the style, but you know, let's admit that the economy is doing pretty well. Not necessarily for everybody, but the statistics yeah. are good right now. That is something that you're not going to hear from Democratic candidates because it's toxic. It's toxic to say anything good about the Trump years, but one or two will simply have to at some point if they want to get uh, some of those voters who stayed away uh, from the polling booths last time around, if they maybe want to get that, frankly, pretty much impossible voter who goes from Trump back to Democrats. I personally don't think uh, many of those voters exist. Uh, But if they do want to go in those directions, they will have to at some point acknowledge if they agree or not uh, that some of the Trump policies uh, might have to be kept in place. Uh, Because at the end of the day, a president can undo a lot of things, can do a lot of things by executive order. You cannot undo everything. It is impossible to do undo everything, certainly on day one and certainly not in the first 100 days. Some of the Trump policies will remain uh, for years to come. And there has to be a moment where one or two Democrats say, well, maybe this is one of the ones that we will we will just have to keep. My last question for you, Philip, is about philosophy. And Sorry, it's a question I can't that I've talked to a lot. Philosophy, of- what? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I know it wasn't either of our best subjects in school, but I, I'd like to try and 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 for, uh, just go a little bit further. Um, this is a question I have talked about this with just about every reporter uh, that I've uh, ever talked about with debates. One of my favorite questions at these debates, especially on foreign policy, is to ask a large, you know, fifty thousand foot view question. What is your philosophy mm-hmm. of dealing with these problems, the America's role in the world? And I imagine that that for the for the audiences that you will be serving, again, you'll be an international affiliate reporter uh, for the Associated Press on this assignment here. So you'll be talking to places around the world who desperately want to know what the potential U.S. philosophy that fifty thousand foot view might look like. Mm-hmm. I think now some people say limited utility. That's not always who who knows your ability to put together a 45 second response in a debate is not necessarily dispositive. But I find it fascinating because it is a distillation of some of the deepest thoughts about who we are, where we are going and what our responsibilities are. There was a really good question on foreign policy when it comes to uh, uh, genocide. That was a big question in the last round of debates. And the idea that we would have that responsibility to, to do something in those circumstances, that is a big question in foreign policy and global affairs, international law. And it got very short shrift, but I was fascinated to see it on the debate stage. I'd love to hear more 
of those philosophy mm-hmm. answers? What kind of are a are those valuable to you? I imagine they are, but are those valuable to you when you're trying to answer these questions for your affiliates? And B, and potentially more, what are you looking for in terms of what might play well on these debate stages? Because it is a a wide variety of candidates out there. They've mostly had similar answers, though, when it comes to who the biggest threats are and what our role needs to be. I'd love to see some distance and granularity there. So what we've what we've heard is you know who the biggest threats might be. We haven't heard, and this is a bit of a softball answer for for most candidates, I suppose. If you ask them about uh, their their foreign policy philosophy for the next half a century, say, I presume that most of them would be able to say we need to renew our alliances, right, essentially yeah. alliances that that have been weakened uh, under the Trump presidency, the NATO alliance, the uh, alliance with the European Union, with the United Kingdom, which is good simply because the two leaders like each other. Uh, that's not really good enough. Well, and, and Trump, by the way, just this week was talking about how the EU was basically created to uh, to uh, compete with the United States, an answer he created out of whole cloth. I mean, just the idea, uh, yeah. I mean, his history is so wrong, I don't even have time to get into it, but the idea that this would be the animating philosophy that they are competing against on these debate stages this week. But, you know, we've we've come so far during the Trump presidency, and some would say we've gone so far backward that uh, a lot of these candidates will have to state some what would have been incredibly basic facts uh, three years ago. We are strong. Uh, we are strong NATO allies. Uh, we will work together with the European Union. Those are things that would have been boring uh, two or three years ago. Now they're necessary. That's the kind of thing that a European audience and that a, a Western audience, if you will, desperately needs to hear from these democratic candidates. Because remember that you know when you do the embassy circuit, if you will, in, in Washington, D.C., and you speak to some of these uh, foreign policy advisors, maybe a foreign minister here and there, I've started asking them this question. Are you just waiting? You know, are you, yeah. have you kind of given up on on trying to understand the Trump presidency? And are you just hoping for this to come to an end? And one or two will say, yeah, to be honest, <laughs> we are now in that position where we're just hoping uh, that, you know, a, a more rational presidency starts uh, in the year 2021 and we can start our normal relationships again. Because, you know, I, I'm going a little bit off the question here, but remember that a lot of these, you know, foreign ministries, embassies, they still don't know who on earth they should talk to within the Trump administration, <laughs> maybe because an assistant <laughs> secretary is missing, because there is not even an acting secretary. Or an ambassador. the Yes, or because the administration doesn't care uh, and doesn't reach out to enough countries. That is, uh, you know, this affirmation of Western values, if you will, and Western alliances is something that's necessary. Here's another thing, though, in terms of foreign policy that we haven't mentioned yet. Uh, What will define the Trump presidency is his outreach to dictators. Yes. Uh, And the question, of course, for these candidates is, would you do the same? And that's, you know, that's not an easy no answer, because at the end of the day, Trump has reached out to Kim Jong-un, has got very little out of it. But he is right when he says that missile tests and nuclear tests have stopped. So you do have to ask these candidates, look, you well, there was a report. With- well, there was a report just just last week about potentially yeah. restart. I mean, you're in the view of Donald Trump. Oh, those were minor missiles. Please ignore them. <laughs> <laughs> he so, is concerned you know, I mean, about but, one but look, subset of missiles, apparently. But generally, if if we uh, say, you know, during the days of fire and fury, when <laughs> the, the president, uh, you know, 
basically threatened uh, war against North Korea. If you look back to those days and you look at where we are now, this is a better position to be in, uh, despite the fact that the president might have lost a lot of face for the United States by being uh, a friend of Kim Jong-un's. It's not a good look. Uh, so one of those questions is, you know, does all of that, does does the end result, uh, is it, are the means okay to reach this end result? Would you meet with someone like Kim Jong-un if it guarantees that there will be no nuclear tests? Would you meet with him uh, to get toward uh, the um, the denuclear, denuclearization, one of the most difficult words to say, uh, of the Korean uh, peninsula? Would you meet with uh, Hassan Rouhani, say, uh, in Tehran? Uh, would you meet with Raul Castro? Uh, those are things, even though Raul Castro is no longer the, uh, the head of Cuba, still the most important person there. Those are some new questions that have arose, uh, have arisen rather during the Trump presidency. Uh, would you meet with these people that two years ago, it would have been impossible to think that an American president would meet with Kim Jong-un. Now that is a realistic question. Would a President Biden, would a President Harris, would a President Warren, would they meet with Kim Jong-un to be able to talk about denuclearization? Those are actual questions that they'll have to answer at some point. Well, I hope you get any grist for that mill because we will be waiting as these next two days pass. I will get absolutely none. <laughs> well, that's good. I, you know, I mean, if you expect so little, you will never be disappointed, Philip. And I'm really grateful for, and, and that certainly is the animating principle of this conversation, where uh, you will be paid absolutely nothing for your contributions here this afternoon. Uh, <laughs> Phil, it's been an absolute pre pleasure, though, Jared. <laughs> I am so glad we got to talk to you while you're in Detroit and while you are getting absolutely. ready for these debates this week. Of course, I will be uh, doing part of my, my part for live coverage. You know, you will be in the spin rooms and the media filing center, which is just a collection of televisions, work desks, and uh, electrical outlets. Uh, I will be at Local 16. Don't say that, Jared. Don't, don't give it away. <laughs> it is all smoke <laughs> and mirrors, folks. There is absolutely... They are it's watching kind of it on television just like you are. And in fact, we will be watching it on TV. Actually, we will be watching it on a projector screen here in D.C., Local 16. If, if you're in the, in the D.C. area and you would like to come to uh, Local 16, is at 16th and U Street. We will be there both Tuesday and Wednesday night. I hope to see you there if you're in Washington. Philip, you're welcome to come uh, some other time when you're not in Osaka or Detroit or any of these other cool places. <laughs> uh, but for people who are in Washington, please come by uh, and we will be offering both the uh, an edited version of the conversation, a much shorter version to everyone, and a full version, which includes... Uh, you know, every mumble I put in, every attempt at a joke I put out into the microphone, and also every joke that actually comes from the warm up comedian and all the guests and everyone that we're talking to, that'll be for Patreons, uh, patrons of the, the program through our new Patreon, which uh, there will be some details um, wherever details uh, are sold. So please find that. And Philip, I, I really hope to catch up with you once you're back in Washington. And we can talk again soon. Thank you for this conversation. Philip Crowther is an international affiliate reporter with the Associated Press. Thank you so much. Enjoy the debate. It's been an absolute pleasure. And uh, you get a, a, an opening comedian and I do not. So uh, you will be in the better place, Jared. Uh, <laughs> I need an opening comedian and you do not. That is really what's happening. Have fun. Here. Great to be on with you. <laughs> Thank you so much, pal.